Welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Colin Brusanthis, a Canadian educator and activist and an organizer with Community Wealth Candidates. In a few seconds, we'll be talking to Paul Jay in depth in a three-part interview, culminating many months of coverage on the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Stay tuned. Paul Jay, our usual host, has been presenting in-depth analysis and coverage of major issues for decades. Throughout the Ukraine-Russia crisis, he's been doing long-form interviews with experts of various backgrounds while developing his own positions. He has been highly critical both of Putin and the US-NATO positions, which has opened him up to criticisms from all sides. He has invited me in the name of Good Faith Discussion and Coverage to present him with a new number of positions and challenges, which he will try to answer to as well as he can. Please note that that means that I will be presenting positions that are not necessarily my own, though I will try and present them as clearly as if they were. Paul, shall we jump on in? Yeah, please. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, I'd like to begin by presenting a little bit of context, which is the context of how Vladimir Putin started to come to power. And this is something that a lot of people feel is left out as we look at current notions of national identity and power relations, which I know is something that you have been tapping into quite a lot. So in case anybody thinks that I'm presenting a kind of pro-Soviet position here, I'm going to mention somebody or cite somebody who has been brought up and repopularized by the right, particularly Jordan Peterson. This is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the author of the Gulag Archipelago. But a lot of people don't know what Solzhenitsyn was writing in the 1990s. And this is as uh, Boris Yeltsin is now in power, a very right-wing form of government is uh, in terms of its economic system is being presented in Russia, initially called libertarian capitalism. And Boris Yeltsin had uh, Chicago school econ economists who said that in six months, the markets would start to correct and in a few years, it would grow into the fourth largest economy on earth. Here's Solzhenitsyn on the results. He says, the most vivid reflection and assessment of our reforms can be ascertained from our demographics. Here are some statistics now known worldwide. In 1993, deaths in Russia outnumbered births by 800,000. The suicide rate sharply increased, accounting for up to a third of all unnatural deaths. People who have despaired and do not see why live, why give birth, we are dying out. And Jeffrey Sachs, the economist who was working in Russia at the time, said the United States was very keen to see Russia turn into a hyper-capitalist country, but they were not keen on providing aid to smooth that transition because they wanted to be the only superpower on earth, and they were happy to see Russia crumble. And ultimately, Putin comes to power when Yeltsin is forced to resign with an apology for his naivete. Uh, do you think that this context is something that is important to understanding some of the current sentiments that Russians and Putin hold, people on different sides of this border? And do you think it's being neglected and left out? Just to get started, let me say the reason I wanted to do this is not because I consider myself a great expert uh, on these issues, uh, you know, I, I, I get a chance to talk to a lot of smart people, as you as you mentioned. Um, but there's been a lot of uh, emails and comments on all the various platforms, you know, asking me, what do I think about this? What do I think about that? How dare you uh, condemn Putin? Uh, how dare you condemn NATO and so on? So, so I thought I, I, I'd at least give some answers as best I could. And so people know where I'm coming from as I continue to do interviews about this. So all that said, um, of course, it's critical context to understand the process of the uh, demolition, collapse, uh, whatever term you want to use, of the uh, Soviet Union and the 
the 1990s, uh, Yeltsin, and the rise of Putin. Um, the, the, it, it's in some ways a bit of, a, of an anomaly, historical anomaly, what happened with the Soviet Union and, and, and the roots of this current Russian capitalism. Because, uh, you know, as it begins the 90s and when the red flag goes down and Yeltsin declares the uh, end of the Soviet Union, there's this weird thing left, uh, an enormous uh, military structure, um, a, a nuclear weapons uh, arsenal, uh, more or less equivalent to the United States, maybe not quite in some ways, but s s way more than enough to blow up the United States and the world. So it's a, it's a very significant military power, even if as the 90s unfold, um, it's the, much of the economy is in chaos and destroyed, uh, the industrial base and, and, and other parts of the economy. So it's this weird giant military with a, a pygmy, I hope I'm not insulting anybody, uh, chaotic economy, um, which the, as you point out, uh, in that quote, the Americans were more or less quite happy with and didn't quite know what to do with. They were overjoyed with their quote-unquote victory over the Soviet Union, which really had far more to do with internal uh, processes of the collapse of socialism and, and of extremely bureaucratic uh, economy, bureaucratized economy and politics. And yes, the external pressure of the arms race, uh, the invasion of Af Afghanistan, they're contributing factors. But the underlying problem was uh, the, the way socialism was built in the Soviet Union was doomed uh, and fated to collapse, in my mind, because they tried to have this centrally planned uh, economy uh, that you were doing, uh, figuring out with the pencil and paper. And you just can't do it. Uh, and so without getting into much detail, it became so bureaucratized, so heavy with pencil and paper. I mean, the amount of paperwork and bureaucracy um, that they just could not keep up with a modern, complicated economy. Um, and, and there's, of course, many other reasons. Uh, and, 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 you know, it, it, the state itself had, more, had mostly become very unpopular. And, and because it wasn't really working, uh, it was becoming, you know, it, was, it never democratized, even after the end of Stalinism and so on. So, um, so it comes to an end. As, and then the 90s become a, 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 this process where I think the Americans in the West hoped that it would become not just a free-for-all, but a free-for-all where Americans could take advantage and where eventually American capital could come in and control the financial system, and especially the raw materials would be grabbed by Western mining and oil companies. And in the course of this 90s and chaos, uh, the, what really happened is the apparatchiks from the party uh, and and in the state, they grabbed most of the resources. And so you had this rise of the oligarchs and these uh, billionaire class coming out of much of people that prior to that had claimed to be communists, which is a joke in itself, tells you something about just how communist that communist party was. Uh, 
And so as we get, you know, towards the end of the 90s, the way I understand the situation is so crazy and, and um, Yeltsin is drunk and out of control and corrupt. And to have a coherent capitalist system, um, which, which everybody wanted, what I mean by everyone, the Russian oligarchs on the whole, the more, you know, wanted some rules-based order because they'd already profited from this era of, uh, you know, wild west, or we should call it wild east. Uh, but now that you own all this stuff, you need a system that protects your ownership and some kind of rules within which you make money. Because if you just have this crazy grabbing of stuff, you know, primitive grabbing of stuff, it impedes how much profit you can make. And eventually, people are very fed up with it. So you're just asking for rebellion uh, from the people. Um, and the West wanted it too. Uh, the, you know, in general, the way that U.S. capital works, uh, they they prefer rules-based order as long as it's open to their capital. They don't want rule-based order that pushes back, that's too nationalistic. Uh, but all, but they prefer some kind of uh, rules so that if you invest, you're going to be able to protect your investment. It's not going to get grabbed by somebody. So Putin, if it hadn't been Putin, it would have been somebody else. The, the Russian capitalist system and global capitalism wanted some kind of coherent leadership to create a state the same way states operate in the West. What they didn't want and they were, I, I guess, now looking back, and if one looks at the history of Russia, they, sh in theory, should have understood, you're not going to get a state in Russia that isn't nationalistic, because that's the history, that's the culture, that's how Russia is held together. Nationalism is an extremely important fabric for making such a large place with so many diverse populations. Uh, if you don't have this overarching Russian nationalism, it's very hard to keep this thing together. Uh, I have to say the same thing about the United States. You know, if, if the Americans didn't keep pumping American chauvinism and American nationalism and, you know, this religion of an Americanism, so everyone's quote unquote united. Oh, why are we so disunited? Well, you're so disunited because you're made up of so many different sectors of people. Uh, most importantly, you're a class society. So you're inherently disunited. And the same thing, of course, was true of Russia. So Putin comes, represents the a natural process of capitalism to create some coherency, some laws, all in the protection of private property. And it, you know, starting with the property all these oligarchs have seized. So the 90s was, was such a disaster uh, for the Russian people and, and for to, you know, the former Soviet republics too. Uh, but you know, in terms of infant mortality rates, more you know, longevity of life and so on, education, I mean, it all went to levels that were far below what had existed in the last years of the Soviet Union. And in fact, there was a growing nostalgia for the Soviet Union among, amongst, in fact, there still is some, but amongst much of the population. Uh, so Putin was a, a necessary thing. Everybody wanted this. But then what happens is, you know, if you look at the objectivity of what Russia is, well, one, this outsized 
punch above your weight military, which is not going to go away. Two, a large population, or it's like 140 million people or something like that. You know, Canada's, Canada's the, what is Canada's like the, I think, ninth or tenth biggest economy in the world. And what are we, what is Canada? Like, like uh, 35 million now, if you want to be generous. So every, everything about Russia in terms of its natural resources, the history of an educated people, uh, its size, uh, ac you know, access to European markets, access to Asian markets, everything about Russia is it, it, it has everything to be a major and, and regionally dominant uh, economy. It's, it's, its weakness is, weirdly enough, because it's a fossil fuel economy, they just don't diversify the way they could have. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's, what do they call it, the Dutch disease? Or, you know, when you're so dependent on such a lucrative, easy flow of money, there's not a, as much impetus to diversify, although the Russian economy is a lot more than what some people joke about. You know, it's like a gas, you know, a country that's a gas station economy. And people are seeing it now, you know, in terms of grain and, and what's happening with fertilizer and, and, and a lot of other products. So uh, I think uh, Michael Hudson said that actually the Trump sanctions uh, were a boon to Russia because they ended up uh, pushing some of their other sectors into a more vibrant state of affairs. Yeah. So and, and, and the current round of sanctions, even more so. So you get, uh, you know, in capitalism, there's this kind of law of uneven development of capitalist countries. And you get now that you have a coherent, coherent meaning the Putin government, um, a, a coherent government, and the beginning of, of a reorganization and a growing of a, of a Russian economy, still way too fossil fuel dependent, but still, all things considered, if a natural course of events had been allowed to unfold, that is Russia becoming a major player in Europe, um, and in theory, even joining the EU, there was talk at one point in the early 2000s that, you know, that Russia would even join NATO, which makes no sense at all, because what the hell is the point in NATO at that point? Um, so, so the Americans, their, their fundamental uh, objective is, one, contain Russian, Russia, don't allow Russia to become an equal to Germany in Europe. Because it, you know, why wouldn't it be over time an equal of Germany? It, it has everything Germany has. Uh, you know, eventually it could be industrialized and, and sophisticated. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, as I say again, the, the Putin government could have done this, but they, it was just such easy money. Anyway, uh, so, th so from the Western side, the way they restrained Germany prior to the First World War and didn't like this uh, growth of a major German capitalist power that might even contend with the colonies of, uh, of England and, and France and to some extent the United States. And, uh, you know, they didn't want Germany to become another, quote, you know, quote unquote, kind of superpower, uh, which get, helps create the conditions for first, the First World War. Um, the same thing gets more or less is the logic of the West towards, towards Russia, not to allow Russia to become a major player consistent with its population size and so on. 
Um, now, the second thing is the oligarchs in Russia um, are brutal, um, are ridiculously, fabulously wealthy. Not to say, I have to, I, I don't know how often I have to keep saying this. This is not to say the Americans' oligarchs aren't as bad or worse, but let's set that aside. And it's important to set it aside because Americans, including much of the American left, they want to analyze everything as if everything's about the United States. Well, no, not everything is about the United States. Yes, of course, it's a factor everywhere. But it's not always and often isn't the decisive factor. And, and in this internal development of the Russian oligarchy and state is, is more uh, a domestic process done in the context of the Western uh, attempts to restrain Russians growth, Russia's growth. The state develops. It's coherent. It punishes oligarchs that don't submit to this this, this new rules-based state. It, under Putin's leadership, it rewards oligarchs that play ball. Now, there seems to be this deal people talk about that if they leave politics to Putin and the, his apparatchiks and the state, uh, then you oligarchs can go off and make money. Yeah, you'll pay some tribute to the state. Um, the state actually regains ownership in some significant fields, like in the arms production and, and fossil fuel production. There's significant state ownership in these sectors. Uh, well, who's at the top of that state? Putin and his apparatchiks. Uh, so they become a real power unto themselves, uh, and a necessary power, because the oligarch class needs them to hold this chaotic thing together. In the same way, the American oligarchs need the American state to hold that chaos together. Um, but as, as this uh, develops, and, and because the process of the accumulation in the 90s was so corrupt, again, let's not remember, forget the robber barons in the United States, the, the roots of American capitalism are in slavery, genocide, and corruption. I got to keep saying this, because if you just critique and talk about Russia, then people are going to say, oh, you don't think the Americans are so bad. No, the Americans are so bad. And, and I'll just say it once, and I, I'm not going to keep repeating it. There is no country on earth that has committed war crimes at the scale of the United States. It's in a league of its own. Uh, we can talk more about that later. But now I'm talking about Russia. So the fundamental issue here is that the large masses of Russian people are dispossessed of publicly owned resources. And, and while life gets better compared to the absolute chaos of the 1990s, the, uh, the thievery, the, the plunder, the exploitation of the Russian people and their resources is intense. And that's why you see these massive super yachts everywhere. So this oligarch class that rules Russia and the state, which rules on their behalf, and Putin, they represent the real enemy of the Russian people. In the same way the American oligarchs represent the main enemy of the American people or the Canadian billionaires. I'm not sure I can call them oligarchs. Maybe they're not big enough to be oligarchs, but the Canadian billionaires are the enemy of the Canadian people. Because the fundamental thing when you analyze all this, which is all 
certainly all the mainstream analysis, almost without exception, won't talk about, and much of the left analysis doesn't talk about, is we're talking about class societies. And if you don't start from there, your analysis is nonsense. Then you're just going to fall into one piece of propagandistic scenario or another. The fundamental enemy of the Russian people is the Russian oligarchy, not the Americans. And same thing goes. You know, the enemy of the Americans isn't the Chinese or the Russians. And I'm not even talking people to people. I'm even talking government. Russian government is not the threat to the American people. It's the American pe government and oligarchs that are the real enemy of the American people. And same thing goes. You know, Chinese government, you can talk about what China is or isn't. I think we're going to do another segment on Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Sure, the Chinese government may have contradictions with the United States, but they're not the enemy of the American people. And even if the Chinese do all the horrible things to the Chinese people that they're accused of, which I don't think is anywhere near true as the West propaganda says it is, but even if it was, it's still not a threat to the American people. So, you know, in looking at Russia, the Russian people were, are, were, were and are getting and got fed up with being plundered by their oligarchs. So what's the answer to that? Well, the answer in Russia is the same answer in the United States and, frankly, the same answer in China and lots of other places. It's nationalism. You know, get a nationalist fervor going. The external enemy is the real enemy. And divert from the uh, focus of the people on just how bad our ruling class is, our government is. And that's true in all the countries. It's, it's true in Russia. Along with nationalism, and it's, this is part of the history and culture of Russia, but it's also true in the United States in a different way, religion is, is, is inseparable from Russian nationalism. The Russian Orthodox Church, Russian nationalism, in other words, national identity, the religious component and nationalist component, it almost can't be separated now. Uh, you know, during the days of the Soviet Union, the religion was the party. You know, decades of inculcation and propaganda, a large section of the people believed in the party. And the party, for some time, did do some decent things for people. It did some horrible things, but it did some decent things. So, you know, party became the religion combined with nationalism especially as in the lead up to World War II and never went away. Uh, so you get this very reactionary, toxic brew of how the oligarchs maintain ideological hegemony control in Russia, Ra nationalism, virulent uh, right-wing fanatical Russian Orthodox religion, and I'll say again, you're seeing a very similar process in the United States with uh, white Christian nationalism and so on. But anyway, so, so let's go back to the beginning question, the quote from Solzhenitsyn and the 90s. The poisonous brew's roots are in a chaos of the 90s, 
that here the West played a significant role in creating. Of course, the demise of the Soviet Union was mostly through internal processes. But the West did everything, Americans did everything they could to encourage Yeltsin and the crazy craziness of the 90s. But then it becomes its own process as capitalism organizes itself in Russia. And now you get a state which is a, this, a, a, a very um, reactionary, you know, very right-wing, very autocratic state that rules on behalf of the oligarchs and tries to keep opposition to the oligarchs in check and does this all within the context of a world global capitalist system, which is very much part of, although it's a little less part of it since the invasion of Ukraine, and I don't think that was part of the Russian plan, but within the context of a global capitalist system, which is very chaotic, uh, which is filled with competing interests and led by uh, an American power that wants to be the global hegemon as much as it can, although I don't think it's ever been as much the global hegemon as some people suggest. I mean, they want to be, but they haven't been as successful as they would have liked to have been. But being global hegemon means you've got to be the hegemon in every region. So... Once you have the fall of the Soviet Union, that's a great victory. Now you want to be the hegemon that includes Russia, but it's too big to do it, and it's too strong. So, so yeah, the, the, the West plays a significant role in the chaos of the 90s, but we're past that now. Just I can quickly say something, then we can talk more about it. Now, if the West and the U.S. had any rationality at all, uh, they would not continue this process of trying to contain Russia. And, and I'll just say as a final sentence, and then we can get more into it. When I judge these things, I have only two real criteria in the end because I care about myself, my kids, you know, my family. Uh, I care about climate change, I, uh, the climate crisis, and I care about the threat of nuclear war. So I don't care what we're talking about. It has to be judged through that lens. Yeah, that sets the context pretty wonderfully. I think we're in for a, a, a very uplifting conversation. Um, <laughs> um, I'm going to say, I'm going to bring in a couple of, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to move ahead to another question, actually, which is the question of responsibility for this crisis. I think you've set the context really wonderfully. But the question of responsibility for this crisis is one that I think a lot of people have major questions about and have, have thrown criticisms at you as well. At. So the question of who is responsible for this crisis, um, do you see it as primarily a US-NATO situation that they've provoked this war and that it's a proxy war that Ukraine is being made a, an American puppet in? Or do you see this as something that really is a war of aggression that fits as we've seen uh, major media outlets, Chuck Todd, of course, on MSNBC, saying this is a part of Russia reinstating its imperial ambitions from a previous era. Uh, do you see it, as, and do you see it as one or the other? Well, that's, no. <laughs> I don't see it as an or, I see it more or less all of the above. Um, the uh, global capitalism has various 
powers within it, centers of power. Obviously, <clears throat> the, the major nuclear armed uh, countries, the major economies, and they contend and compete. Um, and even, even within um, uh, Europe, uh, even the relationship of Germany and the uh, United States is, is contention and collaboration. Um, you could see in that submarine deal to Australia, the French had a, sold in a, their sub to Australia. And then the Americans uh, got a deal, got the British, and they made a new deal with Australia. And they took you know, this Anglo-American submarine. Um, it's a fear, you know, you can, the competition can get very fierce, even within the so-called Western alliance. The competition is extremely fierce inside the American elites. I mean, look, look at the chaos of American politics. Uh, you know, they, they, they talk about, you know, there's only one party, really. The less, some of the left say this, Republicans and Democrats. It's not true. There are various centers of power in the American elites, and they, you know, they play it out through these parties, and the competition can get quite vicious. And there's a section of the American elites that are trying to, who've always believed, by always I mean from slave times, they've always believed that most of the American people are subhuman, you know, whether it was the black African slaves or indigenous peoples or immigrants from Europe, especially immigrants of color. They, you know, there's been section of the elites that have always believed that the uh, American elites are real humans and everyone else is subhuman and government should reflect that reality. You know, they're social Darwinists. You know, they really believe that, that the rich are more or less rich either for two reasons. One, because on merit, and because of their genetics, they're simply better than everyone else. Or as Steve Bannon told a meeting at the Vatican, uh, many of the rich are rich, and I'm quoting him directly, because God chose you to be rich. He actually said this, and this guy, Cardinal Burke, who's this American cardinal that wants a, was trying to overthrow Pope Francis. And he, under Burke's uh, tutelage, there's this, something called the American Family Foundation or something. And they had a meeting at the Vatican about five, six years ago. And, and Steve Bannon comes in on a Zoom call and speaks to them. And in his speech, he says, You're, most of the people in this meeting are millionaires or multimillionaires or more. He says, you're rich because God chose you to be rich. And as a result, you have a responsibility. And your responsibility is to help wage a war in defense of Judeo-Christian civilization against Islam and China. And Andy says it's going to be a bloody, vicious struggle. So now, so that's one section of the American elites that Trump represents and the people around Trump and significant sections of the elites. Certainly the military-industrial complex that loves tension with Taiwan. Um, but on the other hand, you've got a section of the elites like BlackRock, the, big ass, the biggest asset management company, is plowing money into Chinese investments. Apple's opening up new plants in China. So 
the, the global capitalism, there's nowhere it's, it's uh, there's fractures, there's chaos. So why I say all, all of the above is responsible for the invasion of Ukraine. So you have competing interests, but there is a kind of, uh, uh, at least on this point of foreign policy, not all, in the American elites and in the European elites, there is a there is a consistent, fairly unified policy of not allowing Russia to become a, a, a major European power. So that's the underlying issue here. The containment of Russia, uh, the exp eastward expansion of NATO, um, the, uh, the a certain amount of arming that took place of Ukraine between 2014 and February 2022, although not nearly as not a massive amount of arming of Ukraine that took place after the invasion. Uh, but certainly uh, instigations, uh, you know, talk about Ukraine becoming part of NATO someday. Um, there are contexts for the invasion, but they were a context for years. Like, why now? Why does Russia invade now? Like, this, this talk's been going on since 2014, if not before. If I can bring up one challenge to that, one challenge to that, which is, uh, John uh, Mersheimer's challenge, which is that, yes, it's been escalating since 2014, and he blames the United States for that pretty heavily. Uh, but he also says Biden upped the ante in 2021 and recommitted the United States, uh, or recommitted to NATO expansion into Ukraine. Okay. So let's say that's true. I mean, I think, it, you know, more or less it's true. Number one, whatever Biden said, it doesn't make any damn difference because it was clear they were never going to get NATO consensus, which they must have for a new member of NATO. Turkey was never going to agree to it. France and Germany were against it. Uh, some of the Scandinavian countries were against it. Um, it was so clear that whatever rhetoric was coming out of uh, Kiev or coming out of Washington, it was bullshit. It could not happen. Uh, and it just was not on the table to have unanimity amongst NATO for Ukraine. So Putin knew this. Uh, the eastward expansion had already happened. And honestly, uh, according to people like even Vijay Prashad, who's, you know, you can't get more anti-NATO than Vijay. Uh, Boris Kargalitsky, who's Russian, who's, you know, very critical of Putin, also NATO. Uh, both of them and many others say there was not serious opposition from uh, Moscow over NATO expansion. There were statements, you know, there were some complaints. Uh, not serious. Uh, and, 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 you know, more serious would have been actually like taking some action against some of the countries that join NATO, whether it's on the trade front or others. Um, so, number two, even if, even if NATO Ukraine joins NATO. So then what? Is it any different than Estonia being in NATO? What's the difference? Uh, Kargalitsky pointed out Estonia is actually closer in terms of missile range uh, to Moscow than Ukraine is. So what exactly changes in the whole balance of power, even if Ukraine's in NATO? Why? Is Ukraine going to invade Russia now? I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. The only thing NATO, Ukraine in NATO might have changed 
is on the issue of Donbass or Crimea. Maybe. But that's one of the reasons they would never let Na uh, Ukraine into NATO, because they don't take countries that are in the midst of such battles over borders. Because you can't join NATO and the next day have an Article 5. And, you know, and what NATO, you know they join NATO and the next day uh, American troops are supposed to land in Crimea? I mean, that's insanity. It wasn't going to happen. Let me make sure I'm understanding your position clearly. First off, you were saying that a lot of the excuse making around NATO expansion into Ukraine is just that, that that's basically a facade, an excuse for the invasion that's been provided by the pro-Russian side of this argument. But do you also see the United States as having been poking the bear and setting up a proxy war using Ukraine at the same time? Without doubt. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, if the Americans have coherent strategy, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, then yeah, I think they were, it, it, let's put it this way, they sure weren't disappointed. And they sure could have done something to stop it. Uh, United States could have and should have declared early on that whatever goes on in Ukraine, and if Ukraine joins EU, uh, whatever we do there, the United States will never support Ukraine joining NATO. Other countries have said such. Uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's nonsense for the Americans to have taken a position. It's not up to us to decide whether Ukraine wants to join NATO or not. No, it's not up to you to decide whether they want to. But it is up to you if you're going to vote for it or not. So you could have declared we're never going to vote for it. Right. Now, that said, I put even more blame on the Ukrainian oligarchs and their government and Zelensky because they could have said, we'll never join NATO. Hmm. You know, they should have said that before there was 150,000 Russian troops on the border. Uh, they could have said that, you know, anytime since Zelensky was elected. And in all likelihood, he didn't say it because of the far right of the Ukraine uh, oligarchy, including, and I'm not just talking Nazis here, but the far right of the Ukrainian oligarchy, the ultra-Ukrainian nationalists, because, you know, this idea of using nationalism to impose the rule of oligarchs, this ain't just some Russian thing. This is also a Ukrainian thing. Uh, so the Ukrainian oligarchs, who were every bit as corrupt as the Russian, used Ukrainian nationalism. And so, you know, why didn't they declare no NATO? Even Zelensky admitted, and this is a few months ago, he admitted Ukraine's never getting into NATO, so why don't we just take it off the table? And that, for a few weeks, they talked about it, and then that went away. Uh, so who do I blame? I blame global capitalism. I blame, uh, you know, the Russian autocracy and, and the Putin government, first and foremost, because I don't, you know, just blaming global capitalism is kind of abstract. I mean, global capitalism plays itself out through real states, real people, real players. It's not a, a metaphysical thing. Uh, and yeah, of course, I blame uh, NATO, but, but Putin didn't have to take the bait. Sure. He's, you know, still, he's, he's still in a war yeah. act of aggression. Yeah. You know, let's say it was pro a provocation. Let's, let's, let's give all the argument to that side that this was a provocation by the Americans to draw Putin 
into an invasion of Ukraine. So let's say that's true. Uh, to the extent it's true or not, there's certainly a lot of truth to it. But but whatever. It was the, here's the only thing that matters when you're talking about who's to blame. International law is very clear. There has to be an imminent threat to your country or you do not have the right to military uh, attack on your opponent. It's very clear. There was no imminent threat to Russia, period. We can't accuse the Americans of an illegal invasion into Iraq, which it was, but it was illegal because there was no imminent threat from Iraq to the United States. That's what made it illegal, nothing else, as far as I understand. If I can offer a challenge here, again, I think there's a lot of justification behind what you're saying, but one challenge that somebody would bring up right now is that the United States has things like the Monroe Doctrine. We've seen how uh, the Cuban missile crisis, of course, in the past had a lot of parallels to this situation. The United States, if these were threats on its borders, uh, would not respond the way you have just articulated the response should be. So is there not, is there not the immediate response of hypocrisy we would not behave this way. Us, we're, we're Canadians, but speaking from the position of the United States being the big superpower that, that we're analyzing here. Well, if, if American hypocrisy is the bar for international behavior, <laughs> woe be us. <laughs> of course, the, the Americans are a rogue state. And that's the problem here is that because the Americans are a rogue state who only care about international law when it serves their purposes and don't give a damn about it. I mean, where's been, where is the accountability for the leaders of the American invasion of Iraq? Why weren't Bush and Cheney charged with war crimes? Not for the torture, which of course they could be there too. The invasion itself was illegal and there's an obligation under international law for Barack Obama to have charged his Justice Department to have charged them with war crimes. And in fact, by the Obama administration not charging Bush Cheney with war crimes, they committed a war crime. That's my understanding of international law. They become complicit in the war crime. So if that's going to be the standard of behavior, then of course, Russia, go at it. Fuck that. China, go at it. Hell, India, invade Pakistan. Hell, Germany, take something over. Uh, Canada, hey, Canada, let's seize Alaska. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, you know, either as progressives, whether anyone cares what we say or not, and to a large extent, nobody does, you know, we're not here determining, I got my daughter, I was talking to somebody about the invasion of Ukraine. And uh, she kept bugging me. She kept elbowing me saying, uh, uh, I want to buy this thing on Amazon for school, a binder. And I'm talking about Ukraine with somebody. And so finally I say to her, I said, listen, you got to stop bugging me. I'm here talking about the fate of the world. And you want me to talk about your binder? And without missing a beat, she says, Daddy, the fate of the world won't be resolved in your mouth. <laughs> well, my God, is she right? So, so what can we do as progressive people except stand up for principle? Of course, 
what the Russians are doing is no worse. In fact, it's, it, it's not as bad. What the Americans did in Iraq is worse. The way they destroyed Baghdad, the way they bombed, the way they slaughtered civilian people, the scale is far worse than what the Russians are doing uh, in Ukraine. But that means we should excuse it? No, we should, what we shouldn't do is what MSNBC does. We shouldn't condemn Russia without always condemning the United States at the same time. Do not fuel American exceptionalism. Do not fuel American chauvinism and nationalism. Always put this in the context of class and a critique of global capitalism. Yes, but to, to just attack NATO and the West is just as big an error as only attacking Putin. You've just become propagandists for, for one section of the elites or the other. Fantastic. And on that note, we'll pick it up in part two.